So it's my privilege this morning to continue our teaching series. Uh, we are looking at the whole subject of identity, whole subject of identity. And um, it seems to me that, in my experience, all of us are after security. We're all after some acceptance. We all want to feel significant. Uh, we might not use those words, but we might express it in different terms. We might say, I want contentment, or I just want to feel fulfilled, or I just want some peace of mind in my life. We are after those things. And actually, the subconscious pursuit of those things explains a lot about the way we behave, doesn't it? You think when you got into trouble at school, um, I know you did, you got into trouble at school and the teacher would um, tell you off and say, why did you do what you did? And you'd say, I don't know. I don't know. And the teacher said, what do you mean you don't know? Oh, I thought it'd be funny. What do you mean you thought it'd be funny? What you really meant was, I just wanted somebody to like me. <laughs> I just thought if I made them laugh, I would feel accepted. And I thought their approval would satisfy some of the existential longings within my soul, miss. That's why I did that, miss. Honest. But you don't say that. But there is this kind of internal, subconscious drive within each of us to answer some of life's big questions. And those big questions are mainly personal and existential ones or just to do with our existence and our purpose. Who am I? Is there any real meaning to life? Um, when, how can I just handle all of this life? Is it ever going to get any easier? Um, when will life calm down? Those kind of questions, they drive a lot of our behaviours. And we're in the book of Colossians and we're considering our identity as Christians. If you are a Christian, you have an entirely new identity. You might not feel like you do, but when you made a decision to follow Jesus, something supernatural and something profound shifted in the way that God approaches you. And God speaks a new identity over you, an identity of hope and a future. And that's what we're exploring together, looking at the book of Colossians. Colossians was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Colossae, which was in ancient Turkey, hence the name Colossae. And we've looked at several themes, haven't we? Can anybody remember any of the things that we've looked at? In Christ, you are. Here's the test. Putting you on the spot. I'm actually going to look for some answers here. So, in Christ, you are. Give me a word. What? Alive. Well done, Jill. Pull out last week's one. That's good. Andrew, last week, spoke on the subject of being made alive. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have been made alive. Anything else? Been reconciled to God. Well done, Martin. You are a saint, Vic. That's right. You are a saint. And one other. You're holy and saint. You've been rescued. Which is okay. That's the, that's the only one that I've done so far in the series. You can remember all the others. That gives me a lot of encouragement for this morning. <laughs> in Christ, you've been rescued. Transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we're in Colossians 3. If you have a Bible and want to look it up, that's what we're going to be reading from. And uh, perhaps the guys at the back can read along or follow along for us. We're just going to be looking at the first four verses of Colossians 3. Paul says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, in reference to Andrew's sermon last Sunday on being made alive, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just four verses. And actually, we're going to make things a little bit easier. We're just looking at this one verse here. Colossians 3, verse 3. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life 
is hidden with Christ in God. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. You have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we're going to look at it in a couple of ways. We're going to just consider what it means to be hidden in God, and we're going to look at what it means to be with Christ, just those two ideas. But first, let's consider this idea. It's quite an unusual sentence, really. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden, which is just confusing because dead people and alive people are not always the same people in my mind. So Paul's saying, you have died and yet you live. So what's he talking about here? Again, in reference to last week, when you became a Christian, you died. The old bit of you that lived for self that was self-centered and hard-hearted and an alien and a stranger when it comes to God, that bit of you died when you became a Christian. Theologically speaking, Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for you. No, in fact, you died with him. His death was in some mysterious way your death. And just as Jesus was buried in the tomb, so you, when you became a believer, were buried in the waters of baptism. So baptism is such a significant part of Christian conversion. You were buried, and as Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday, so you've been raised. So when Paul's talking about you've died and you live, he's saying you have a new life now. So we could always insert that word there. Uh, your new life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's that new life that we're looking at how to live now. These verses that I read, they form essentially the hinge point or the pivot point in the letter where Paul has spent the first two chapters speaking theologically about who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who you are, identity, identity, identity. And now he's switching a little bit in this chapter to start speaking about our activity. He said, in light of all these things, now live like this. We've said before in recent weeks that our identity always precedes, comes before our activity. And it's now in chapter 3 that Paul's starting to shift and start looking at our activity. He says, activity-wise, this new life, set your mind on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. But let's look at this idea here, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, We're going to look at the in Christ bit later. But for now, if you like, Paul's concept is that your new life is hidden in God. Your new life is hidden in God. Which, when I first read that, I just thought, oh, how lovely. What a lovely phrase. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And then when I sat down to think about it, I read it and thought, what on earth does that actually mean? Your life is hidden in God. I don't understand what that looks like. So I'm working on the assumption that at least some of you uh, would wonder that as well. And we're going to look at that. What does it mean to say that your life is hidden in God? Well, let's start by thinking about what it doesn't mean. Okay? Paul is not saying you're hidden in God in the sense that you're to hide away from the world Don't let anybody know that you're a believer in Jesus. Don't let anybody know that. You're hiding away. Hide, 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 hide. Quick, we should. When you become a Christian, you must work from home. Take your kids out of school. uh, Live in a monastery if you can find one. And use the email, never phone. Because hide, hide, hide. Run away. To quote Monty Python, run away. He's not saying that that's how you're to behave. He's not saying that Christians are basically supermen and superwomen who look like everybody else. 
but they just live a normal life and they wear plain clothes and they have a regular job and they live as Clark or Clarissa Kent and that's just their life. And then whenever, whenever there's a Sunday meeting, as Christians, we come and we put the curtains closed so no one knows that we're in here and we say, Jesus, and someone's in need. You think, ah, oh, this is a moment for me to show them my cross and this is, this is, I'm a Christian, let me pray for you, let me be generous, let me love you and then hide, retreat again. He's not saying that. I trust that you understand that. So he's not saying we're to hide from the world. In fact, there's plenty of places in the New Testament where Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says that if you're a Christian, you ought to let your good deeds be seen by others. Because when they see how well you behave and live, they'll praise your Father in heaven. Jesus said of the church, you're to be salt. You're to make the world taste different. You're the salt of the world, salt of the earth. You're to make the world different just by being there. So don't hide from it. So it begs the question again. Okay, so it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? What Paul is saying is, if you're a Christian, it's not clear or it's not obvious to, in, to plain sight quite where you get your motivation from, where you get your life from. Christians have an energy source and a power supply that you can't see it, but it's very real. It's hidden, you might say. It's hidden in God, but it's very real. And often people would look at how Christians behave when they get it right and they might say, where do, the, where do the Christians get their love from? Or where do the Christians get their generosity from? When, see, when Christians are getting it right, in my experience, we are among some of the most generous people on the planet. Um, ever since I became a Christian and found myself in this community of people called the church and just got to know people, I found that I was around some of the most open-hearted, loving and generous people who would give of their time and energy and money. I know many Christians who give 10%, some more than 10% of their income away and then still look for opportunities to give away more money. People have said to me in recent months, can you tell me who's in need so I can give money to them, so that I can cook food for them? Where do Christians get that generosity from? Now some people say, "Our oh, Christians behave like that because they're told to. They have to. That's how a lot of the people, my, my family included, who aren't Christians, would interpret a lot of our behavior. Say, oh, you give money because the church make you. You go to church and the church make you give your money. They're saying, unless you give, you cannot come. Is that true? Oh, there must be a command in the Bible. You have to give. In my experience, people are not motivated by commands. Uh, people, who are, people who live under the tyranny of obeying commands are not generally some of the most open-hearted and generous and loving people. But Christians, in my experience, when we're getting it right, they are. See, I know if someone commands me to do something, as soon as they command me to do that thing, it's the very opposite thing I want to do now. Because I'm a rebel. And I know he's a rebel too. You're a rebel, aren't you? You're a rebel in our very nature, left to my, our own devices. When someone commands you to behave in a certain way, immediately I want to do the opposite. Because that's who I am in my gut. That's, like, that's how I'm hardwired. But Christians, so where do we get our motivation from? Or well, Christians, when we're getting it right, again, are some of the most forgiving people on the planet. Uh, a friend of mine I play squash with who's not a, not a believer, he said that he was listening to Radio 4 recently. He was listening to Radio 4. I don't listen to Radio 4. Um, I listen to Radio 2. Um, I, I don't listen to Radio 1. I'm afraid I've moved away, but I don't listen to Radio 4. I hope I never will. Right now I'm 2. And my friend was listening to Radio 4, and he said that there was a discussion on Radio 4 between uh, this Christian and, the, and someone else, she, and she was talking about how she had forgiven someone who had treated her in an appalling way. He was a, a vindictive and very cruel man, and she'd forgiven him. 
and to the point that there was even some level of reconciliation there. And my friend was relaying this to me, just saying, it was amazing. He said, I don't know where she gets or Christians get the power to do that kind of thing from. Because, Christian, your life is hidden in God. It's not obvious to people quite what motivates you and where you get your strength from. Christians are able to endure under some of the most horrible circumstances. Christians are able to endure and persevere through in faith. Because we have a, as we heard, faithful God. So where do they get that from? How is it that we're able to do that? It's because our life is hidden in God. Consider the flowers. Let me use a flower to help with this. This is a very pretty flower. It's an orchid. I bought it from Morrison's. The flower is very beautiful, very impressive. And because its petals are so beautiful and striking, you would be forgiven for thinking the life of this plant is in the flower. Look at its vibrancy. But that's not true. You know it's not true. The life of this flower is hidden in the soil. Its roots are hidden. I can't see exactly how these flowers get their life and energy and power from. Now, my children don't understand this. See, so around this time of year, when, when I know, sorry, Amy, <laughs> just a sigh of, what did you just do? Around this time of year, when the daffodils start budding, Zach especially will go, look, and rip some flowers out and come into the house to show Amy and say, look, mommy, look, and just throw it on the floor and leaving a mess and probably bring some mud with it as too and go, look, <laughs> trade it into the car because that's what he does. But my son, he's, he wants to show off the life of the flower, but he severs it from the root. And so, without meaning to, he kills the flower. Stupid boy. He kills it because the life of this flower is in here. It's hidden. It's hidden in the soil. Some Christians sometimes behave like that. You think the real life power and joy of the Christian life is in what I do. I must do this. I must do that. I must behave like this. I must, 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 must. And that's rather like a, fl a flower spending all of its time going, look fabulous. Look pretty. Do whatever you can to get those petals basking in the sunlight. All the while neglecting the fact that, no, it's the soil. The Christian is hidden in God. That's where your power comes from. Apart from anything else, what that means for you as a Christian is that you are supposed to dig in to God. He's the one that, is, he's the one that gives you the life that you have, the new life. And it is powered by and driven by Him. So we're to trust Him. God alone can satisfy your soul. Now, I know we know that, but God alone can satisfy your soul. The world cannot do it. Possessions cannot do it. A well-balanced home life cannot do it. A fulfilling job alone will not do it. God alone is able to satisfy your soul because your new life as a Christian it isn't sourced in anything in this world. And so nothing in this world can satisfy it and empower it and cause you to fly and flourish in a contented and fulfilled way like digging in to God, whatever that looks like. It looks like a number of things. It looks like doing what we've just done, gathering as a church to sing worship songs to Jesus, to allow God's Spirit to change us day by day. But actually one of the most significant ways that we dig into God is by being with other believers praying for each other, walking with, other, with others through difficulty. I think I've shared this before, but there was a survey done by Orange County University, and they discovered that it is far healthier for human beings 
to eat donuts with friends than to eat broccoli alone. So there you go. You heard it here first. It is healthier for you to eat donuts with friends than to eat broccoli alone because you are a communal creature built for relationships. So we've just had our big sign up for groups and I had a whole list of people who aren't in a group. That's fine. You do. I know life is complicated and there's a lot of commitments in day-to-day life. What matters isn't that we're part of groups necessarily. What matters is that we have Christian friends that we turn to and pray with and live alongside and love and encourage and strengthen because my life is hidden in God. Therefore, I'm around God's people and I get sparks of their life and it catches me and I, I'm able to live stronger and fuller and more ablaze as a believer. Or i hidden in God, so I dig into God and I, I spend time as often as I can snatching moments to read a portion of Scripture there or, or pray quickly over there or whatever it might be through some of the what has usually been called spiritual disciplines, disciplines not a dirty word, through some of those things, I dig into God because my life is hidden in God. And if I sever myself from my roots, then I can't expect to live and fire as a Christian. Like, let, me, let me prove this with a quote from the 17th century because we all need a few more 17th century theologians in our lives, don't we? Yes. This is, a, this is a something that a man called John Owen said, Dr. John Owen. Um, He said this, Be assured there is no better way for our healing and deliverance, yay, which is how you know he's from the 17th century, because he says things like, yay, because the 17th century was a period in Earth's history where humans got confused with horses. Anyway, he says, for our healing and deliverance, yay, no other way but this alone, obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and steadily abiding therein which is all of the information you needed to reassure and remind yourselves why it is you don't read 17th century theologians, isn't it? Like, sorry, mate, what did you say? I heard some words, and I think there was English in there, but what on earth do you mean? John Owen is saying there's nothing better for your soul than to regularly obtain fresh views of Jesus and to regularly ensure that you're being satisfied by Jesus. Nothing better for your soul. Nothing better for you. As I've often quoted to my wife. I read a book on motherhood recently, in case it ever happens to me. And the lady who was writing this book, she said this, a clean floor, no, no, wait, a fat soul is more important than a clean floor. I've quoted that here before, I think. Whatever it is your day-to-day job involves, a fat soul is more important than some of the chores of life. Oh, but I have to do that. I have to take those kids there, and I have to wash this, and if we don't do that, our lives will unravel and become a mess. True. Granted, life is complex, and there's a lot that needs to be done, but the point is still true. A fat soul is far better for you than those things. I mean, Jesus said similar things to to back up my plant analogy, didn't he? Speaking of himself, he said, I'm like a vine and you're like branches stuck to me. Abide in me, he said. Remain in me. Apart from me, he said, you can do nothing. Again, I hear that and sometimes I can think, so you're telling me I need to add more chores to my list of chores and things... I'm the vine, you're the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. This isn't a chore. This is the source of everything else. You neglect this, the house is going to fall down eventually. It will do. Paul says in Colossians 3 that we read, therefore what you need to do is seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. Jesus again said, seek first God's kingdom, God's activity, God's will, God's plan. Seek that first and everything else will be added to you. Okay, so that's hidden in God. Now let's look at this next bit. Your life is hidden 
with Christ. Your life is hidden in God, but it's hidden with Christ. And as we alluded to just then, this is really the key to it all. This is where your life comes from. In God, but it's your union with Christ. When you became a Christian, you got joined with Jesus in some profound, supernatural way. You became united with Christ. Jesus is the perfect son of God. He's called the beloved of the Father. He's the logic of creation. He's the song of the angels. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Jesus is the bottomless spring of comfort and of joy. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life, meaning I satisfy your soul. When I go through periods of difficulty, spiritual dryness, when I'm doubting God, when I'm considering everything in my life and going, oh, woe is me. Often I recognize it's because I've stopped being nourished by the bread of life. I've stopped trusting him. Jesus said he's the light of the world, as we've heard. He's the Alpha and the Omega, meaning he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the everything in between. He's the author and he's the ultimate editor who brings it all together. And our hearts were made to seek and find their rest in him. Can't get away from that. You are more than just matter. You're a spiritual being. And God made you to seek and find your heart's rest in Jesus alone. See, Jesus is more than just the entree to the Christian life. He's more than just the starter, the soup, the bruschetta. He's more than that. You're like, let's get Jesus done. Like, okay, yeah, I received forgiveness and now I live as a Christian. Oh, Jesus is the steak and chips. Jesus is the main event. It all begins with Jesus. It start, starts with him, finishes with him, and everything about him is in between as well. You've been united with Christ. One of my favorite writers, um, he puts it like this. He, he says, because of the, just the sheer weight of what goes on in your week and what you do in your job day to day, because the, the sheer weight of hours is invested in that, we can be forgiven for ending up concluding that essentially we are what we do. That's what I am, right? Because I do this, that's who I am. Because they said that, that's who I am. And he says this, quite a helpful image. He says, put bluntly, when not defined by Christ, I find myself to be as fragile as a puffed up balloon. Here's a balloon. As fragile as a puffed up balloon. So you do something well, someone compliments you. It's nice to receive a compliment. Your ego inflates ever so slightly. And then you do something else and someone says something nice about you. You think, oh, that's good. I feel good about myself. I had a successful time at work. I got a, a pay rise. Someone recognized the hard work that I do. My kids got a good grade in school. They finished their homework on time. Yay is me. Everything is right with the world because that's ultimately who I am because of the stuff that I do. The trouble is, if you're defined by things like this, this is a very fragile thing. And all it takes is for me to just let go for a second and it's gone. It's gone. When defined by anything other than Christ, you become like these balloons. And we spend our lives trying to hold them up in the air. Like, okay, so I do this and this is therefore who I am until we lose track of one and we have to pick it up and go, okay, I've got it. Oh gosh, it's gone. And suddenly we find ourselves crashing down because this was who I defined myself by. Because I'm, I don't know, funny or because I'm successful, popular. Because I am those things. It's fragile. It's a fragile way to live. And so 
Many of us live in desperate paranoia that if we lose this, if we stop giving this due attention, it'll go. And if that goes, I'm gone. So we build walls around ourselves. Can't be honest with people. Can't let people see the real us. Because if you saw who I was really like, you could pop me. (laughs) You could reject me. And I'm, like everybody else, longing for security, longing for acceptance, longing for significance. But Jesus, his definition of us, is less balloon, and it's more bowling ball. If the barrier's up if you need them. Bowling ball. As you go through life, when you allow Jesus to define you, you become more solid, more weighty. There's more substance to you. And you can take knocks. You were designed to take knocks. You were designed to be hurtled down a bowling lane and destroy things. You're a bowling ball. No one can take that away from you. See, on the one hand, we have the fragile definitions of self and and dead balloons, dead flowers. On the other hand, we're rooted and hidden in God and we're bowling balls. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says, so we can be confident that what he says of us stands and it's true. I mean, God gets to speak words of identity over you because he made you. Your new life especially comes from him. So he gets to name you. So Amy and I having a, another son, um, due on May the 2nd. Um, and when this child is born, we will name it. That is our right, because we made it. She did most of the hard work. Um, she, I will do the rest, don't worry. From there on, I will be up in the night. You can ask her. Um, but we will name it, because that is our right, our privilege, because we made it. God has made you, your new life especially. And now he is allowed to speak over you who you are. So when you want to define yourselves by other things, oh, this is who I am because they said that and this happened to me, Jesus said, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Who made you? Who gets to name you? I do. That's what he would say. I came across this example of um, something that a, a pastor relayed when he first went into ministry. He sat down with a woman who who came to him for counsel, but ended up sharing with him something profound and significant from Colossians 3. You see, because in Christ, you are ultimately secure. In Christ, you're permanently safe in him. And he gets to define who you are, gets to name you. And this woman came to a pastor when he was in his early 20s, just figuring out what what to do and how to encourage people. Um, She was someone who'd been through a lot of hard knocks in life. She'd been in and out of uh, several abusive relationships and her face and body bore the marks. And she sat down to talk to him and she said that she'd been going to counselling. And the counsellor was helpful. But she began to see that the counsellor's advice to her was essentially this. The counsellor said, for a long time you've defined yourself by the boyfriends that you have. Now I think you should get some qualifications, get a job, and become a successful businesswoman, be independent, and get some self-esteem and self-worth, feelings of value. And the woman thought, it's good advice, but ultimately she saw, she's asking me to swap one definition of myself for another one. And rather insightfully, she said this, For many years, my heart has been looking at men and saying, unless I'm successful at love, I'm nothing. But the therapist wants me to look at my career and say, unless I'm a successful, independent businesswoman who's in control of my life, I'm nothing. I don't want to be enslaved to my work as I was to men. 
I don't want to be as enslaved to my independence as I was to my dependence. I'm actually being asked to exchange a typical female idol for a typical male idol, but I don't want either. Did you hear what she said? She said, I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want to be enslaved to my career like I was to boys, to relationships. And that's quite a profound insight. Because whether you realize it or not, when you offer yourself to something and ask it to define you, what you're really doing is chaining yourself to it. When a girl says to a boy, I need you, I cannot be without you, or vice versa, they're saying, here, have me, I'm yours. When you say to your job, I must get that promotion, I must succeed, I must, I must, I must. All the while that you've got drive, that's fine. But as soon as you reach a moment of hopelessness or anxiety or just sober assessment of your lot, you realize, I'm enslaved to this job. I can't get out of it now. And there's many things, aren't there, in life that we offer ourselves. We say, I need you. I must have you. These are good things. They're not bad things. But when good things become ultimate things, they become destructive things because they're never meant to bear that burden because they enslave us. And that's part of the big difference between being in Christ and not. Christians are not better people than non-Christians. I trust you know that. We're aware of that. I'm not a more moral person than the rest of my family. In fact, no, they're a lot better behaved than I am a lot of the time. But the difference is they're enslaved to earthbound, worldly definitions of themselves. Whereas I'm rooted, I'm hidden in God. The one ultimately leads to death. The other produces life and godliness and fruit. If you're a Christian, that's you. You're hidden in God with Christ. Now go back to this, this woman in the story. Uh, the guy, when, when he heard this, he said to her, so how's it going? You know, this realization that you don't want to be enslaved to that. How's it going? And she replied, when I go to church, when I'm in worship, when what Jesus did for me is so real and so wonderful in my heart, I think of the men in my life, And I say, I speak to them, and I say this, I'm glad I know you, and I certainly wouldn't mind being married, but you are not my life. Christ is my life. I'm done making anything else my life. You're a good thing, but you're not an ultimate thing. I'd love to have a husband, but if I don't, I've got Jesus. And I set my mind on things above. She says, you can't give me any of the things that Jesus has given me. See, I don't want to look to men or a career. A career can't die for me. If I live for a career and fail, it will beat me up all my life for having been a failure. But if I fail Jesus, he died for me to forgive me. Imagine you saw an artist um, who'd made a beautiful sculpture. And imagine he threw himself in front of a bulldozer to give his life rather than having his artwork destroyed. Apart from anything else, you might say of this man, you would say, gosh, look, that sculpture must have been his life because he gave his life to save it. God sent his son to give his life for you. You were Christ's life. You were what he was ultimately about, rescuing you. Now that you are in Christ, see, when... When you see yourself in that story, that's ultimately 
our identity comes from the story that we see ourselves part of? Is your story predominantly your family, your upbringing, your chemistry, your biology, your wiring? Is it that? Is it your nation? Is that who you are? Your nation's history is your history. That's what defines you. Or is there another story? This story. The story of the Son of God giving his life for you. When you see yourself in that story, you're able to point to the things in this world, things that otherwise might cause you anxiety, might bully you. You're able to point to them and say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. And I know dozens of people in this church and others who have lived like that and lived like that and have done that for decades. People who've made seemingly hard, sacrificial decisions because they are able to look at things in this world and say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. So teenagers, people in the youth group who remain sexually pure in a society that's saying, doesn't matter if, if, if you want to, just do it. But teenagers saying, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to pursue God's plan and agenda for my life. Why? Because that is not my life. Their definition, the world's definition of what I should do with my youth, that's not my life. Christ is my life. People I know who've been single for decades because they've decided to wait for someone that they could have clear conscience and faith for a relationship with. And so they've been single for decades, waiting for the right person to come along that they might give themselves to. And they've been able to pursue a path of singleness in a society that says, oh, singleness is horrible. How horrible for you to be single. They've been able to pursue that path joyfully and sacrificially because they're able to look at the things of this world and say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. I know people who've spent decades giving generously, foregoing family holidays because they want to give to the needy and help build the church. And they've given and given and given. Why? Because someone's told them you must? No. Because they've looked at the things in this world and said, you are not my life. Christ is my life. What he says for me goes. And we face many tests throughout life, not least of which is the the test and trial of obscurity, where suddenly you are successful and you relocate to another town. People don't know you in this new town. This new family, new friends, you've got to start again. What should I do? How should I be? It's hard. In that church, I used to do this. People knew me for that. Now I'm here. What do I do? How do I live? Well, you're able to point to the things in this world that might taunt you and bully you and say, you need to do this. You must have that. You're able to point to them and say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. And we read it. Paul said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let me just finish by reading another quote from John Owen. See, John Owen was tragically familiar with heartbreak. At one time in his life, he was the vice president of Oxford University. He was successful. He was popular. He was well thought of in society. And then a new government came into power. He lost his job. He was exiled socially. And he was constantly harassed by the government of his day. On top of all of that, John Owen had to bury all 11 of his children. Oh, I just can't even imagine the weight of heartbreak that man must have felt. And on top of that, he had to bury his own wife, Mary, as well. At the death of his 10th child, John Owen wrote this. Thinking about the glory of Christ. I think it's up here, actually. Maybe. Thinking about the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life 
and it is the sovereign or best antidote to expel the poison in these troubles, which otherwise might enslave their soul. He was a man who knew all too well the poisonous troubles of this life. He knew it more than I ever will, hopefully. But he said, still, the best antidote I know to those poisons is seeing Jesus, fixing my mind on him, seeking the things that are above, giving my hands and feet to the things that he's called me to do. Why? Because my life is hidden with Christ in God. And if you're a Christian, that's who you are as well. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Secure, loved, full of hope, full of purpose, full of meaning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that our lives are hidden. Hidden in God, secure and safe. We give you ultimate permission to define us. To tell us what to do. To tell us how to view ourselves. And I ask that you'd make us a group of people who are so full of the life of God that we overflow with joy and generosity and forgiveness and sacrificial serving of loving of each other that we might, we might tell the world out there, <laughs> tell the world that we know, tell the world that we might tell them that there's a God who loves them and who sent his son to die for them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.